welcome to the Clinical Care Options and Global Medical Education Neurology and Psychiatry Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Phipps. Today's episode features Dr. Greg Mattingly, an associate clinical professor and psychopharmacology instructor at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, and Dr. William Clay Jackson, clinical assistant professor of family medicine and psychiatry at the University of Tennessee College of Medicine in Memphis, Tennessee. They will be discussing dilemmas in tardive dyskinesia in primary care. This episode is part of a larger educational program entitled Tardive Dyskinesia and Psychiatric Illness. For more information on Dr. Mattingly and Dr. Jackson, along with links to other programs on tardive dyskinesia, including other podcasts and clinical thought medical commentaries, please visit the show notes. Thanks again for joining us today, Drs. Mattingly and Jackson. Let's jump right in with the discussion. So Dr. Jackson, how is the use of antipsychotics changing the patients that you take care of as a primary care physician? What have you seen over the trends in the last few years? You know, when we say last few years, I actually had to stretch back a couple of decades uh, because as the atypicals came into use in primary care, we saw a shift from the, the sort of bipolar one patients and the patients who had schizophrenia, who had frank psychosis into patients who had bipolar depression uh, some of those patients actually had bipolar 2 and bipolar not otherwise specified. And this sort of began um, in the early aughts, if you will, say 2001, 2002, 2003. And then subsequently, we saw these uh, molecules begin to be used in the major depressive disorder space for augmentation for those who had um, treatment-resistant depression. So over the course of my career, I've seen an expansion into the so-called soft bipolar arena of patients and also into the augmentation strategies for those that didn't respond to traditional SSRIs or SNRIs. Yeah, I know when you and I are probably both going through medical school or residency, me in psychiatry, but you in primary care, back then antipsychotics were mainly reserved for people with pretty hardcore chronic mental illness, schizophrenia in that bucket. But that's really broadened. Um, you know, we've seen it in depression, we've seen it in bipolar. And one of the biggest uses these days actually is for complex anxiety disorders. If you look at some of the veterans affairs groups, bad PTSD, things of that nature. How, how much training did you get to, to think about using antipsychotics in that diverse group of patients that you as a primary care physician tend to see? Zero um, in, my, in my medical school. However, in residency, I was very fortunate to be uh, placed in a program where my director had a deep and abiding interest in specifically bipolar disease, but the broader spectrum of affective disorders in primary care. And so we were using lithium, we were using um, the so-called anticonvulsants, you might call them membrane modulators, such as uh, valproic acid. Um, we were using um, T3 supplementation for people with major depressive disorder. And so uh, when the atypical sort of um, had their advent and we got non-closable agents or, or, or non-closapine agents, uh, where weight gain was not such an issue, um, we were pretty adept at using those fairly early on. But I think I was fairly atypical, if you'll pardon the pun, because my program director was so uh, deeply tied to his psychiatric colleagues and was interested in how to help patients at the primary care level who, for whatever reason, uh, were not amenable to referral to psychiatric colleagues. And so we sort of were at the front lines of mental health uh, in the early 2000s. So 
um, a little bit of training uh, in residency, and then a lot of self-teaching and uh, attending CME conferences and learning from colleagues such as yourself as time went on in private practice. You know, we've talked about the diagnoses that we now use atypicals for, depression, bipolar, bipolar spectrum anxieties. How about just the types of patients that come in your practice? You know, these aren't the people in the state hospital anymore. These aren't the people in the public health clinic. What's the, the variety of the patients? Give me the patient subtypes you tend to see atypicals in this version of medicines used with at this point, Dr. Jackson. I just got a text from an international teacher uh, who'll be flying out to another country in a couple of weeks, uh, highly successful mid to late career, um, who has deep, deep OCD. Um, that patient um, may be um, helped by an atypical antipsychotic. Whereas, as you said, 20 years ago, we were thinking about a very different type pop population. I have, I have soccer moms. I have successful business entrepreneurs. I have college students. Uh, these are a very different profile of patient than traditionally the, the antipsychotics were reserved for um, as therapy has expanded, both indicated with very good evidence. Um, and honestly, some uh, of our prescribing may not be so evidence guided. I mean, we, we get used to a medication, we get used to what it does in certain patient populations. And if someone has failed traditional therapies, you know, they're on their third and fourth and fifth line of therapy. We sometimes reach outside the evidence to see how a patient will respond. That's something that um, that happens and it can have good effects for some patients and ill effects for other patients. I think it's it's worth noting here, particularly regarding tardive dyskinesia and some of the other adverse events that can arise from the use of atypical antipsychotics, whether they be first generation or second generation. I think it behooves us to stick as closely to the evidence as we can. And certainly if we're taking any um, expansion of, of documented evidence, certainly want to discuss that with the patient in a way where they have a true informed consent process. You know, I 100% agree with everything you're saying. You know, I, when my training started out using antipsychotics for that traditional hardcore state hospital chronic mental health patient, and I can remember 20 years ago, right at the time you're mentioning it, starting to do a lot of clinical research trials, looking at these for a lot of other indications. And these were people that had complex depression, complex mood disorders, and it hit me. These are teachers. These are moms. These are dads. It's every spectrum of the rainbow of people that may have these types of mental health conditions. How could we do a better job training primary care physicians to screen for tardive dyskinesia? What could we do different to help you guys in your training? You know, what could we bring to the table to help you? You know, we need to know that something is prevalent. We need to know that we can quickly uh, diagnose or discriminate between that and other uh, conditions and disorders. Um, a screening tool is helpful um, if it can be quickly administered. You know, a four-page screening tool um, is going to get a, a four-minute eye roll from us. We also need to know that we can make a difference or we can quickly get the patient to a colleague who can make a difference. And so, you know, in primary care, we're really not invested in uncovering problems that are insoluble because we we have so many solvable problems that hit us uh, at, at at every visit. When I analyzed my own practice, I had my patients present, most of them had about four to five problems they're presenting with and seven to eight medications that I needed to address all in about a 13 minute face-to-face -face visit. This was before the advent of the EHR, in which we're spending much more time administratively being sort of court stenographers and typing up the eye patient rather than treating the, the real analog patient in front of us. And so in a limited time space, we need to know that it's important. We need to know we can make a difference. 
we need to know that we can quickly diagnose. So scales and screeners that are reliable and are quick can really help us with that. And then we need to know there's a therapy that can make a difference. Yep. So Clay, I know you do a lot of work with other primary care physicians as a teacher, as an educator, you know, teaching them how to look for mental health issues and examine it. And, you know, we've talked about the AIMS kind of being the gold standard to evaluate tardive dyskinesia. I've spent a lot of time over the last few years working on, you know, what I think of as a great screener for primary mental health and primary care physicians alike called the Blue Man Screener. And it's essentially just an image of the body. It looks kind of like a blue cutout image. And we ask patients to go around the body. Have you noticed anything in your tongues and lip? Have you noticed anything in your fingers? Have you noticed anything down your feet? Have you noticed anything in the middle of the body in your trunk? And in one of the studies called the Reconnect Study, they compared that screener when a patient filled it out compared to somebody doing a, a complex neurological exam and actually doing it with an AIMS and trying to pick it up as a clinician. And the correlation was amazingly high. And what surprised me, and I think it surprised a lot of us, when patients were asked the right question and given this little blue man screener, they were just as good at picking up tardive dyskinesia as a trained clinician. It is amazing. Uh, you know, Greg, I, I was taught in medical school that if you listen carefully enough, the patient will tell you what's wrong with him or her. And so it, I think it, it is quite, quite amazing, though, when we have these uh, randomized controlled trials that actually prove um, that old clinical adage that if you listen to the patient, they will identify the problem. Uh, so I think your work is, is outstanding in that it gives us the power to say, hey, a simple tool can be as effective, at least as a screener, as a complex exam by a seasoned professional. If I had any one take home for our friends out there in mental health and for our friends in primary care, the tardive dyskinesia, a lot of our studies have shown that it kind of lives in the shadows. These people have a lot of shame and that shame keeps them from coming forward and asking for help quite often. So if you just ask the right questions, have you noticed anything in these parts of the body? If you show them that blue man screener and ask them to fill out questions that take none of your time, they can fill it out with themselves, a nurse's aide, and, and take a look. Do I see anything here? It's amazing how observant our patients tend to be. I think you're exactly right. I, um, I sort of wonder, though, you know, in your experience, do you think that there's a push from mental health experts or from patient advocacy groups to place TD on our radar as primary care clinicians? Or is it something that... Uh, you know, has sort of been swept under the rug by us as well. What's your perspective on the status of screening for or looking for TD in primary care? You know, I think TD up until, you know, a handful of years ago, we didn't have great tools to treat tardive dyskinesia. So it was one of those kind of don't ask, don't tell kind of phenomena. If the patient isn't complaining, I'm not going to ask about it because I don't have a good tool. I don't have a good treatment for it. You know, in the last four years, that's totally gotten flipped upside down. Well, before we talk about that, Greg, and, and I'm very as excited as, as you are about the, the changes that have come in terms of, of, of pharmacotherapy, but you know, I think there was some cognitive dissonance uh, with myself and with some of our colleagues. We had heard um, that second-generation uh, atypical uh, or, or the so-called atypical antipsychotics were better with respect to TED, and that's true. Um, we obviously, many of us had experience with first-generation antipsychotics. And in our nursing home and geriatric populations, we had seen that. But I think we sort of hoped that um, that would sort of happen only in an elder population. And of course, it is a greater risk in the elder population. And we had hoped that these ambulatory patients, this broad panoply of patients that we talked about, broad variety of ambulatory active patients would not experience tardive dyskinesia. And don't ask, don't tell uh, might have become a putative uh, cognitive structure for us. But 
It's actually not true, is it? I mean, actually, with treating much uh, broader variety of patients and actually many more patients, I, I wonder if the area under the curve is that there are more people at risk of tardive dyskinesia today, 2021, than there was in 1981. Because although we're using much more sophisticated drugs that may have a lower risk, we're actually treating a lot more patients, aren't we, than we used to be? I, I agree with you 100%. One of the most recent studies that I saw, Clay, showed that only 11% of patients that have tardive dyskinesia currently have a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Wow. Complex disorders tend to be mood disorders, bipolar disorder, complex anxiety disorders. And the growing group that I've seen a lot of, because I do have child psychiatry, is, is adults that have developmental disabilities. Many of those adults with developmental disabilities were put on antipsychotics in their early years. So by the time they're 30, they've already had maybe 15 or 20 years of antipsychotic exposure. We know that, again, that area under the curve of time of exposure and and dose can make a, a, a somewhat of a difference. Although, you know, some studies have said this is not necessarily a dose response relationship. Um, it stands to reason that the length of therapy does make quite a difference. And, you know, in my own study uh, regarding tardive dyskinesia, I was a little surprised to find that um, with respect to the first generation versus the second generation of antipsychotics, there's not as much difference as we may have thought. You know, I kind of grew up thinking that, you know, with haloperidol, um, you know, in elder patients, which is sort of a the worst case scenario in terms of risk um, that, you know, you might have as much as 50, 60 percent of patients having TD. But it's much lower than that with ambulatory patients who are younger. And, you know, SGAs, we think that it never happens, but actually the numbers are somewhere around two to three percent. Is that correct? I mean, this is really something that we need to think about. We need to screen for. And we probably need to talk about it with patients more than we do at the onset of therapy. Yeah, I, I agree. You know, lifetime exposure on the old classic first-generation antipsychotics, it was about 30% of people would develop some form of tardive dyskinesia. If you're in that crossover group that a lot of our patients maybe that live in a nursing home or a group home where they had some first-generation early in their illness and now they're on an atypical, the numbers will say it's about one out of five or about 20% over the course of their lifetime will develop some version of tardive dyskinesia. And with the newer atypicals, as you've said, the number is not zero. The number there is somewhere between 3 to 8%, depending on which study you look at, will have over the course of their lifetime some version of tardive dyskinesia, and we know that it tends to get worse over time. What, what do you think, and I, I always call them the rookie mistakes, the, the two rookie mistakes that I've seen throughout my, my career with tardive dyskinesia. Number one is you increase the dose, and you think at first that you've made it better. But over time, what happens is the tardive dyskinesia just gets worse as the antipsychotic goes up. The other rookie mistake I've seen, and I'm sure you've seen this in primary care, Clay, is you put somebody on the wrong medicine, i.e. an anticholinergic. You throw an anticholinergic because you know there's some type of movement disorder, but you don't step back and diagnose what type of movement disorder it is. Yeah, we need to have a difference with TD, don't we? We're talking about tardive dyskinesia, but that's different from tardive dystonia. And of course, we were all taught on the psychiatric inpatient wards as third-year medical students or fourth-year medical students that if someone has dystonia, that an intramuscular injection of diphenhydramine uh, can be quite effective because of the anticholinergic effect. But in fact, with tardive dyskinesia, anticholinergics may actually make the problem worse. So it's, uh, it, again, a rookie mistake that sometimes we make in conflating two very different disorders with, with very different uh, pathophysiologies. Yeah, I, the APA this year, last year in 2020 came out with guidance and said that you know anticholinergics are not to be used for tardive dyskinesia. First of all, they don't help tardive dyskinesia. And a number of studies actually shown that they may accelerate the course of tardive dyskinesia. 
So, you know, it's, it's the place, please screen your patients if they're on an anticholinergic. Make sure they don't have underlying tardive dyskinesia. Make sure you're not missing the diagnosis and make sure you're not accelerating the diagnosis. Well, let me ask a different question. This is kind of a flavor of going back to the world you live in. What are the advantages that primary care physicians have? If we can get you guys trained to kind of look for tardive dyskinesia and put it on the radar screen, what do you bring to the table that maybe I as a mental health professional don't have the options to provide? You know, we have contact with a patient. We have uh, family relationships um, and we have significant other relationships in terms of important persons in the patient's life um, that can also give us information. Hey, I've noticed this about Bob. Hey, I've noticed this about Susie. Uh, what do you think, doc? And so, or what do you think, nurse practitioner or PA? And so we have that continuity. We also see the patient over time. Think of it as just a series, rather than one great Nikon high resolution picture, we may have Polaroids, but we may have 12 of those a year, whereas you may have two. And so I'll take 12 Polaroids over two Nikon shots if it comes to getting some idea of the moving picture, pardon the pun, of a patient's life. And so getting frequent exposure to the patient and being able to notice subtle changes are great advantages that we have as PCPs. Of course, we're concerned about, you know, we need to know a little bit about a lot of things. And so we get sometimes very intimidated by our subspecialty colleagues who are saying, this is the way you need to do it and watch out for this and watch out for that and don't make this mistake. And, you know, as you're going over the rookie mistakes, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, did I make those last week? Uh, we're certainly thinking of it in that way, but it, we don't need to be intimidated. We need to understand that we are the front lines of patients' defense in terms of helping them to avoid mental illness and to embrace mental wellness. If there is a challenge with therapy, we have the therapeutic chops. We have the clinical capital with the patient and those around the patient who matter to the patient that we can drive adherence. We can drive um, the openness to share concerns. You know, that 11% figure of people who are hiding in secret shame, if you will, of having some symptoms of TD, but they're reluctant to bring it up with their healthcare clinician. I would say that we really need to beat that in primary care because we should. We should have the clinical capital with our patients that they would feel comfortable sharing that. If they'll talk about colonoscopies with us, if they'll talk about urinary retention, if they'll talk about sexual dysfunction, surely they can talk about some twitching that they're having or movements of the tongue or face or cheeks. Surely we can be an open avenue of communication for patients. Yeah. And Clay, I mean, you guys have the obvious advantage of not many of us in mental health are doing physical exams. You're looking in their mouth. You're looking at their fingers. You're seeing them walk. You're watching their gait. You're looking for all the things that we should be screening for to pick up tardive dyskinesia. And as you said, not only that, but you have the long-term continuity that quite often we don't have. Somebody pops from one clinic to another. You guys tend to see people for long-term periods of care, at least in my community. Um, what do you see with, with telehealth? Have you seen some changes? Are you, are you guys back in the clinic? Are you doing your physical exams? I know a lot of my colleagues in mental health, we're still doing an awful lot of telehealth in mental health. What's happening in the primary care scene? In primary care, I'd say it's probably 90 to 95% back to analog exams where people are in the physical spaces of the offices. Most primary care practices have returned to, to somewhat normal. I think the challenge now is there's such a backlog of sort of maintenance care that was put off during the pandemic that we're, we're now a little bit overwhelmed, maybe not so much by volume, but by complexity of problems that people have because, you know, mammograms were put off, pap smears were put off, uh, cholesterol screenings were put off, and EKGs weren't done. And so there's a lot of work to, 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 to be done. I'm very hopeful 
that the advent of telehealth uh, will remain in healthcare. I don't think we're going back. I think once you take a Lyft or an Uber, uh, just doing taxi cabs doesn't make sense. You need a mixed model of public transport. I, I think having had telehealth, I think patients are going to demand that that becomes part of their portfolio of services that they can avail themselves of. Um, and I think payers will have to pay attention to that. And certainly the federal government is open to that as well as being one of our primary payers. I'm hopeful that with telehealth staying, and I'm assuming that it will, I'm operating under, under that assumption, I'm hoping that this sort of barrier between consultation, between the primary care and subspecialty world, uh, getting patients, particularly in rural areas or medically disadvantaged areas, getting them subspecialty input should become easier if it's digital. Even if my patients don't have broadband access or Wi-Fi access, you know, I can bring them in the office and with a very simple uh, laptop or tablet setup, even an iPhone or, or Android setup, I can have them connected to a subspecialty colleague such as yourself in seconds. And so why wouldn't we take advantage of that? Why wouldn't the subspecialty sector take advantage of expanding their practices, of expanding their catchment areas? Why wouldn't PCPs take advantage of that uh, in terms of expanding their knowledge base and the services that they offer? Frankly, it's a practice differentiator. And I think some people that are smart, not only clinically, but are smart in terms of entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship will, will, will see that and will make a way to take advantage of subspecialty knowledge and primary care touch, high tech, high touch to help patients get the best care. Yeah, you know, Clay, you probably saw it, but there was an article in JAMA a few weeks ago that talked about telehealth and how it's been used in primary care versus mental health. And they had graphs of in-person visits. They had vis graphs of telehealth visits that had a visual component. And just as you said, what we've seen with primary care, you guys used a lot of tel telehealth in that middle of COVID. Yep. But now you've gone back to probably 90% in-person visits. Yep. The opposite had happened with mental health. We used a lot of telehealth but we're continuing to use a, little a lot of telehealth. What surprised me about that JAMA article is 60% of mental health care visits are being given not just with telehealth, but they're really audio health. It's, phone it's telehealth without a visual component. And I think that's why it's even more important that we use our, you know, our primary care colleagues that are seeing the patients, touching the patients. They've got to be our screeners. They've got to be our eyes and ears. They say, there's something here that's not right. You know, I can see Susan or Tom's, there's stuff in their lips, there's stuff in their fingers, they've got some kind of a movement here. And then you get us on the phone, or you get us on the computer, you get us on the Zoom call, and you say, hey, take a look at this for me. In order to do that, you guys so have to be committed uh, to making sure that you have a visual exam uh, as part of that telehealth component. I understand but it's more difficult to do the AV. Um, and, and I've had to break down to telephone calls with rural patients. However, um, you know, we just need to commit, at least in our offices, to, to making the AV component work, I believe, because, you know, the nightmare scenario, as you've already mentioned, with respect to this particular adverse event of our therapies, is if you can't see the patient, it takes a very sophisticated ear to hear uh, the lip movements or the speech um, changes that would come with a, a tardive dyskinetic patient, whereas visually, um, it's much easier to pick up uh, from an exam standpoint. So I, I'm quite concerned about that. I think that something also is lost when we go strictly to telehealth and, and don't have that, that physical presence in the room. I'm not sure that empathy transfers very well across a digital format. I don't think I'm very good at it. Maybe, maybe you guys are past masters, but I'm a little concerned about that. And I, 
I, I worry about that 11% figure of not reporting that you talked about um, if we're only operating from a telehealth standpoint. So great advantages, great opportunities, but also I think some concerns and some risk involved in um, how we change medicine moving forward. 100% agree. Let me ask you, so this is kind of the elephant in the room. Do you think we'll ever get to a world? You know, we used to say that primary care are never going to treat depression. That's a mental health issue. And, and now what's the number, Clay? 70, 80% of, of depression is being treated by primary care? Absolutely. Yep. And, and you guys take care of pretty complex mental health. When I'm listening to you, I'm saying, listen, he's not just seeing the simple cases. You're seeing some pretty complex patients. And that's what I see in my community as well. Do you think we'll get to a point where the PCPs are using medicines to treat tardive dyskinesia, the VMAT2 inhibitors? I think we really will. Um, I think it will depend uh, primarily on location. You know, psychiatrists tend to be distributed on the eastern seaboard in the Megapolis area. Uh, they're on the West Coast and they're around major medical centers. But uh, the United States population didn't have the forethought to distribute themselves uh, with normative distribution around psychiatry centers. And so uh, a lot of our patients just have uh, trouble accessing um, uh, good subspecialty care, and they depend on their generalists to provide care for them. So I think if you give folks a medicine that's fairly easy to use, um, that's fairly easy to understand in terms of dosing, uh, that has a low adverse event profile, I think there'll be um, a, a subset of, of folks that will, will use that because many of them are treating patients um, that are elder, uh, geriatric patients, some patients with behavioral disturbances, and then they're also in this uh, treatment arena of the severe anxiety disorders, the complex anxiety disorders, uh, the bipolar patients. And, you know, when you're the only person within 100 miles that's going to take care of this problem, if it's going to go uncared for, um, that sort of lowers the bar in terms of thinking, I've got to be an absolute expert at this. Sometimes you're the best expert that the patient's going to access. You have to do your best. That's not an excuse for mediocrity. We all need to do the very best in terms of understanding and also maintaining connections ourselves with subspecialty colleagues who can help us. Um, but sometimes we're just the only uh, best chance that the patient has. And so we just have to step out there. So yeah, I think it will happen for some uh, sort of leading edge folks, for some folks who are in rural or um, access desert places, if you allow me to use that phrase. Um, I don't think it'll become the majority of journalists, however. Yeah, so Clay, it's been interesting, and it's it's actually been you know eye opening, awakening, and very heartful for me in the last two weeks. Just like you, I do a lot of you know teaching and educating and things like that, and I work with colleagues in Desoto, Missouri, a very rural, underserved part of Southern Missouri. The number one prescriber, kind of the advocate down there for picking up PD and, and putting people on treatment to help improve the quality of life, is a nurse practitioner who works in a lot of the group homes, and she's a primary care nurse practitioner. And she looked at the improvement in people's quality of life when she started treating their tardive dyskinesia with their other complex issues that were going on from a health perspective. Up in Springfield, Illinois, it's an older fella who's an internist. And once again, he goes to a lot of group homes. He goes to a lot of nursing homes. And he said, you know, the mental health colleagues that were coming in by Zoom call and Zoom chat were just letting this stuff go on. And I'd come in, I see people with tremors and all kinds of stuff going on. So I started treating it. And now he's become the number one champion for treating tardive dyskinesia in the Springfield, Illinois area. So I, I see a world where we work together. I see a world where, you know, people in those arenas that see a lot of it, learn to pick it up, learn to treat it, just as you've learned to treat depression. And then as you said, I, I love that, that idea that, you know, in the future, you'll be able to pick up a phone, take an image of your patient, put them on Zoom, and you'll show them to me, and I'll say, hey, listen, you know, that's not 
this, I think it's tardive dyskinesia. Or no, it's not tardive dyskinesia. I'd take a look at something else. This is not what we're looking for. So I love that collaborative model. I know you and I are both fans of it. Any parting thoughts before we go today, Dr. Jackson? I think you touched on what we need to, to, to really remember. Um, we all have to do our best for the patients. We all raised our right hand and pledged premium non-nocari, first do no harm. Well, these are a group of medications that have significant harms associated with them. We use them not out of convenience, but out of necessity. We use them because the harm of disease, complex anxiety, unremitting major depressive disorder, bipolar disease, whether it's mania or depression or mixed states, uh, schizophrenia, these are illnesses which devastate lives, devastate domestic relationships, destroy careers. And so we use these medications, but if we're going to use them responsibly, we have to look for and manage the potential adverse events. As a politician once famously uh, cribbed an African proverb, it does take a village. We all need to work together. We all need to do our best together. And collaboration is the key. We've seen in other mental health models, such as the diamond model, that collaboration and a case management-based approach, a metric-based approach, a screening-based approach is better than individual uh, intermittent genius. Quality improvement happens by plotting mediocrity every day, just incremental improvements getting better and better and better. And if we take advantage of the patient population that we have, looking at them, screening for this illness, and then treating appropriately, whether it's ourselves as generalists or turning to a subspecialty colleague, we can make a difference. We can see patients get better, and we will have fulfilled our oath, and we will have done right by our patients and ourselves. Let me leave the audience with one last story. And for me, it's always the stories of my patients. You know, just yesterday, I was seeing a woman I've seen for probably 15 years. She has bad bipolar disorder. And a little over three years ago, she got hospitalized. And after leaving the hospital, she went back to see her primary care physician. He called me, he said, listen, there's something going on here. I don't know what it is, but she's got twitches. She's got ticks. I don't know what it is. I don't know what this is going on, but take a look at her. And I, and I saw her, she came in with her daughter. She got diagnosed with tardive dyskinesia. She was having a lot of chewing of her lips and tongue and things of that. Started after she left the hospital. I remember her bursting into tears and saying, Dr. Mattingly, it's been hard enough to live with bipolar. But look at me now. Over the last three years, we've got her on treatment. Her tardive dyskinesia has been very well controlled with treatment. And as we were talking this week, her daughter's getting married in about a month. She said, think of what it'd be like if I was walking down the aisle with my daughter and you didn't have me on this treatment to help control my TD. So those are the kind of the stories of my patients. It was a primary care physician who called me and said, hey, listen, there's something going on here. Can you take a look at your patient? It's my patient's journey with bipolar disorder. And then you talk about my patient's life after we've gotten her treated. So I think those are the stories. That's the reason we're all in this together. And let me thank the audience for joining us this evening. Take care. Thank you very much, Dr. Mattingly and Dr. Jackson, and thanks to you, our listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, for other programs on tardive dyskinesia, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Thank you.